Section 24 of the Story of Japan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Captain Ketchup. The Story of Japan by Robert von Bergen. The 47 Ronin. I must now tell you a story of which the Japanese are very fond. Boys and girls never weary of reading it, and whenever it is announced that this play is to be acted in a theater, the house is sure to be filled. Every foreigner coming to Japan hears about it, and his guide or interpreter is always anxious to show him the mean-looking burying ground where the heroes of this story are laid to rest. But to you and me, this tale is of importance chiefly because it gives a fair idea of the character of a samurai, and shows why the people of Japan place so much trust in the members of that class. A certain regent was expecting a visit from his brother, who was on his way to open a new shrine to the war god, and two daimyo were appointed to receive the visitor, and to see that he was entertained according to his rank. Treason accepted, there is no greater crime than to be ignorant of the proper ceremonies due a visitor, and in order that no mistake might be made, an officer of the court was appointed to instruct the two daimyo. Of course, both were anxious to learn, but the court officer being avaricious, the chief secretary of one of the daimyo bribed him to take more pains with his master. This the court officer did, and he frequently made insulting remarks to his second pupil, while complimenting the first upon his natural aptitude, and flattering him in other ways. At first, the offended daimyo thought that it was really to correct his awkwardness that these remarks were made. But when every successive day brought new insults and hidden taunts, he began to suspect that they were intentional, and he decided to punish the offender. He communicated this intention to his chief secretary, who perceived at once what was amiss. Begging his master to have patience for a few days, he hastily collected as much gold as he could, and in the evening paid a visit to the instructor. He began with praising his entertainer's skill and knowledge of ceremonies, and deplored his own ignorance, declaring that it was due to this that he had omitted to offer him a slight present as a token of respect from his lord, but that he wished to repair this grave error by tendering his humble gift. The court noble made a gracious reply. His eyes glistened as he felt the weight of the gold, and the faithful secretary felt assured that his lord would thereafter have no cause to complain of rudeness. The daimyo was wholly ignorant of the step taken by his secretary, all night he brooded over the insults that he had received, and they grew in number and importance as he recalled what had passed since he first entered the court noble's room. When he prepared to go to his daily ordeal, it was with the firm purpose that his instructor should die if he dared act in his usual manner. When, however, the daimyo entered the room assigned to the exercises, the court noble bowed low before him, and protested that hitherto he had misapprehended his lordship's faculty, and with other soft words attempted to curry favor with a man who could afford such presents. The daimyo took this unwonted politeness as a more refined insult, and, drawing his sword, rushed upon his tormentor. Others interfered, and prevented him from inflicting more than a slight wound. But, drawing a sword within the palace was an offense scarcely less in degree than high treason, and the punishment was severe. The daimyo was condemned to commit harakiri, and his castle and lands were taken by the regent. His samurai might take service under another clan or turned ronin, that is, freelances. When their lord had committed suicide, his secretary called together the samurai of the clan, and gave to each one his share of the cash in the treasury. Some of the older clansmen, furious at the insult to their master and the clan, proposed to follow their lord's example, because any resistance to the regent's decree would be hopeless. But the young samurai were in favor of resisting to death the surrender of the castle. Some indeed received their share, and quietly withdrew, without taking further part in the discussion. Only one, who had occupied the same rank as the secretary, abused him for dividing the money evenly, stating that his superior rank entitled him to a greater amount. But he, too, disappeared, 
and shortly afterwards offered his services to the same court noble whose avarice had caused his master's death. When these samurai, more intent upon their own future than upon avenging the honor of the clan, had left, only 47 remained. The secretary, satisfied that they were loyal, now divulged his plan. He advised them to surrender the castle quietly to the officers of the regent, and to disperse in such manner that they could be easily brought together. He expressed the hope that their object in life would be to avenge in the blood of the court noble the insults and misfortunes of the clan, and that therefore they would take no service, but live on the money received from the treasury. All signed an agreement to this effect with their blood. The widow of the daimyo moved to Yedo, trusting the management of her affairs to the devoted secretary. The faithful samurai took his wife and family to a village near Kyoto, where he rented a small cottage. He knew that his loyalty to his master was known, and that the court noble would take sufficient precautions to ensure his safety, so long as he feared the vengeance of the clan. Already the court noble had doubled the number of his samurai, and, much as he loved money, he did not hesitate to pay liberally for spies to keep him informed of the doings of such members of the hostile clan as he feared most. He was confirmed in his opinion that a plot existed, because no resistance had been offered when the regent's officers appeared to take possession of the castle, and it was for the purpose of counter-scheming that he had engaged the former counselor of the dead daimyo. The secretary now set about lulling his enemy into security, and while in secret he remained a good husband and father, he began to visit tea houses and to lead, apparently, a very frivolous life. His best friends thought his mind had been unsettled by the misfortunes that had befallen his clan. Of course, the spies employed by the guilty court noble kept their master informed of the conduct of the man suspected by him, and as month after month passed by, he began to think that, after all, his expensive precautions might be unnecessary. But the secretary's character was well known by his former friend and fellow clansman, who proposed to his new master to let him proceed with one of his confidential samurai to the village inhabited by his enemy, and to find out if this conduct did not conceal a deep-laid scheme of revenge. The court noble assented to this plan, and the two men arrived in the village. It did not take them long to discover the name and location of the tea house where the secretary was wont to spend much of his time. They decided upon surprising him there. Near the place, they heard shouts of laughter from the waitresses, and when they entered the tea house, they saw the secretary blindfolded, playing a game of blind man's buff with the girls. The two spies asked for a room. They were informed that they could have one on the next floor, but that the ground floor had been engaged by the secretary. They ordered some sake, and settled down to watch. Presently, they saw four men approaching and recognized three of them as freelances, former samurai of the prescribed clan. The fourth man was a common soldier, who wished to be admitted into the band of avengers. They had entered the inn, when the blindfolded secretary, trying to catch the girls, fell against one of his fellow clansmen. You are caught, cried the secretary, and now as forfeit you shall drink a cup of sake. The freelance shook him off. What do you mean by acting in this way, he said. I am your former clansman, and here are two of our friends. I must speak with you. What about, asked the secretary, in an indifferent tone. Then, turning to the waitresses, he added, I don't think I want to play any more. We want to know when you propose going to Yeddo, said the spokesman of the four. Yeddo, replied the secretary, Yeddo. Oh, that's a long way off. What are you talking about? The ronin were furious. They would have killed their former leader had not the soldier interfered. But the man was really anxious to join the conspirators, and modestly made his request. The secretary answered, What is the use of revenge? If we succeed, we shall die, and if we fail, we must die also. What is the good of it all? What is the use of taking medicine when one is going to be beheaded the next day? Still, the soldier repeated his request, but the secretary, stretching himself upon the mats, yawned, turned around, and soon appeared to be fast asleep. The samurai left in despair. The spies were watching. 
They had not been able to discover any plot, although they had overheard every word spoken in the rooms below. The night passed, and dawn was commencing, when they fancied they heard cautious footsteps. A door was opened, someone entered, and a few words passed in a whisper. Then the footsteps were again audible, but soon grew fainter, and silence once more prevailed. It was the secretary's son who had aroused their attention, the young man having come to seek his father. When he saw that they were alone, he cautiously took out a letter. It is from our lord's widow, he said. The court noble is going to leave Yeddo. If we do not kill him now, the opportunity may be lost forever. Go back, whispered the secretary, and when it is dark, send me a covered litter. The secretary lay down, but did not sleep. He thought long and deeply, and when daylight appeared, he arose and took the letter. At this moment, his former friend, the spy, entered the room, and the secretary quickly hid the letter in his breast, not, however, without having been observed. Both watched each other intently, while professing to be glad to meet again. "'What good wind brings you here?' cried the secretary. "'It seems an age since we parted, and our foreheads are not any the smoother for the lapse of time. This is a good occasion to drive wrinkles away.' "'Why, Sir Secretary,' the spy replied, "'is this the way you set about to avenge our lord?' "'Avenge, avenge, what nonsense is this?' Both called for sake and breakfast. The trader, when he saw the secretary eat fish, stood aghast. He believed that the spirit of his unavenged lord might have wandered into an animal, and took care to partake only of vegetable food. The secretary readily understood what was passing in his mind, and, to confirm the impression he had made, said with faint contempt, "'Who has heard that a lord has turned into a fish? Bah! A chicken would be even better eating. Let me order one.' And he went out to see about it. This act may be considered the most heroic of all those performed by this loyal samurai. It filled him with loathing, for he was as superstitious as his opponent, but he wanted to convince the spy of his own worthlessness, and chose the most efficacious means. When the secretary had left the room, the spy's comrade entered. They agreed that nothing was to be feared from a man so utterly ruined in principle, as was the secretary, and, having finished their mission, they decided to depart. The spies entered their curtained litter, but the secretary's former friend passed out on the other side, and hid under the floor of the porch, whispering to his companion, I am not yet wholly satisfied. Go on your way. I mean to discover what was in that letter. When he saw the litter depart, the secretary came out on the porch, and proceeded to open the letter his son had brought. It evidently contained matters of importance, for the reader was plunged in deep thought as he continued to unfold it. It was so long that part of it reached down to the ground, and the spy succeeded in drawing it through the cracks in the floor. What he read confirmed his suspicion. He was now convinced that a conspiracy existed, and that the secretary was the leader. The question was, how could he obtain proof that would convince his employer? This was all the more necessary since his fellow spy was satisfied that there was no conspiracy. He decided to tear off part of the letter. Now it happened that one of the waitresses had come out on the upper porch to listen to some strolling players. Seeing the secretary's letter, and curious to know what it might contain, she seized her metal hand mirror to obtain a reflection. But the mirror fell, and the secretary saw her. He called out to her, Come down, my girl. I have taken a fancy to you and shall purchase your release from this place. The girl, pleased at leaving the service, was coming down when the soldier who had applied for admission among the conspirators reappeared. He was the girl's brother. He had heard the secretary's offer, and while the latter entered the tea house to pay his bill, the soldier asked his sister what it all meant. She answered that she had read part of the letter and told him the contents. Woman's curiosity, he exclaimed. The secretary will kill you to make sure of your silence. Let him do so, she answered. If my death will assist him, he is welcome to take my life. The secretary, who had missed part of his letter, now returned. He overheard what was said, and told the soldier that no harm would befall his sister, but that he wished to keep her safe until the affair was over. A search was at once begun for the culprit who had torn off part of the letter, and the spy was found and dragged from his hiding place.
With the assistance of the soldier, he was bound and gagged, taken to the river, and drowned. His death relieved the secretary of all immediate anxiety. What were the contents of the letter that had caused all this trouble? The daimyo's widow, who had kept herself informed of all of the court's noble actions, wrote that her enemy had dismissed most of the guards he had hired, and he was about to leave Yedo. With the small number of samurai at present in his yashiki, or residence, it would be comparatively easy to finish the affair. She urged immediate action. In a city, not far from Kyoto, lived a merchant who had been agent to the clan. That is, he had sold the rice paid as taxes, and purchased whatever was necessary. This man shared the feelings of the loyal samurai at the misfortunes of the clan, and freely offered his means to help the conspiracy, since he, as a simple citizen, could not devote his life to the cause. His offer was accepted. The secretary designed a model after which 47 sets of armor were made, so that the conspirators could recognize each other in a night attack. The swords and other weapons were stored with the merchant, and so that no gossip might betray what was passing in his house, his wife was sent, for the time being, to her father's house. The merchant agreed to have the two well-equipped junks ready to carry the band to Yeddo, when the time for the final act should arrive. Now, before the unfortunate episode that ended in the suicide of the daimyo and the dissolution of the clan, the secretary's son had been betrothed to the daughter of the man who, with his timely presence, had bought the court noble's goodwill. This man and his family had heard of their old friend's sad downfall, and for some time the matter of the marriage had been allowed to drop. But father and daughter had too great a liking for the secretary's son to abandon the project. So, to please his friend, the father had procured a plan of the court noble's house and grounds. He now sent his wife and daughter to the secretary's home, he himself following at a short distance. The two ladies arrived and were hospitably received by the secretary's wife, but when they mentioned that they had come to confer about the marriage, the hostess grew cold and haughty. Why did your husband first bribe that wretched court noble, she said. Why did he interfere when my lord was going to kill him? Bring me the head of your husband and then I may listen to your proposal. Meanwhile, her husband, disguised as a beggar, had arrived and overheard this cruel demand. He had expected a refusal, but this undeserved hatred made him lose his temper. Here is my head. Take it, he said, entering and throwing off his disguise. I have heard that your husband is not only a ronin, but also a tramp and a madman, and should not be surprised if the son is like the father. Let them take my head if they can. The wife of the secretary was almost beside herself at this insult. Seizing a spear from a rack, she made a thrust at him with all her strength, but the samurai caught the weapon and took it from her. To prevent the furious woman from doing mischief, he brought her to the ground and held her down. Just at this moment, the door opened, and the secretary entered with his son. The young man, thinking his mother in danger, without waiting for an explanation, picked up the spear and ran the visitor through the body. Everyone was aghast at the turn of affairs, but the visitor, who felt that the wound was mortal, recollected the purpose of his visit, and gathering all his strength, explained his object. Let my desire be granted, he concluded, and I shall die happy. Surely you will not make my journey vain. In reply, the secretary opened the sliding doors into the garden. There, playing the madman, he had made two tombs of snow. He pointed towards these, and the visitor understood that they were her father and son, who were to die before the snow could melt. His wife then said, You understand now why I demanded your husband's head. It was not to insult you, but the court noble must die, and my husband and son will be compelled to commit suicide. Why should my son marry on the brink of death? And yet I insist, replied the dying visitor. Take this paper. It contains a list of the gifts that my daughter will bring to her husband. He produced the paper and gave it to the son, who opened it listlessly. But no sooner had he cast his eyes over it than his face grew animated, and after examining it closely he cried, This is no list of gifts, but the greatest of boons. It is the plan of the court noble's residence, with walls, gates, barracks, garden complete. And he passed it to his father. 
Thanks, my old friend, said the secretary. This is, indeed, the best gift we could receive, since it removes the last difficulty. Nothing cannot prevent the punishment of our enemy. Show me the plan, gasped the visitor. See, here is the water gate, and here is the main gate. Force an entrance at these two points. You will have no difficulty in making your way to the private apartments, while at the same time you can prevent escape or rescue. And now, before I die, let the marriage take place. Very well, replied the secretary, but I must go at once to arrange for boats and to collect our men. So, taking a dignified leave of his wife and bidding farewell to his visitors, he told his son to join him the next day and left, after offering a brief prayer to Buddha for his friend. With wife and daughter kneeling beside him, the staunch old samurai was dying. He bore his pain without flinching, and when the lifeless body lay stretched on the floor, the features were in calm repose. The woman began the prayers for the dead, while the wife of the secretary thought with pride of her own husband who was so earnestly bent upon preparing his own shroud. The secretary had hurried to the house of the agent and found that everything was in readiness. The merchant's wife had not yet returned from her visit, and her father was highly displeased, and considered his daughter divorced. Still, the merchant refused to allow her to return, fearing that an unguarded word might betray the cause to which he was devoted. The evening before the day set for the sailing of the conspirators had arrived. About midnight, the agent was aroused by loud and repeated knocking at his door, and when he opened it, six samurai, armed and dressed as city guards, rushed in. He was at once seized and placed under arrest, and the officer in command charged him with conspiring against the life of the court noble. "'We have evidence against you which cannot be denied,' said the officer. "'We have seized this box which came from your house. Confess at once and give the names of the other conspirators, or we will put you to torture.' The box was, indeed, full of weapons and chain armor, and had been sent that day on board the ship that was to carry the secretary and his men to Yeddo. Well, thought the poor agent, all is lost, though through no fault of mine, yet they shall not discover anything from me. I can die but once, and I will die in an honorable cause. With a sudden effort he threw off his guards, and, putting his knees upon the box, dared them to do their worst. Fool, said the officer, what good would it do us to kill you? But we shall find the means to loosen your tongue." At a signal to one of his men, the agent's little one-year-old son was seized and handed to the officer, who pretended to prepare to cut the child's throat. Whatever may have been his feelings, the agent gave no sign of submission. Now, said the officer sternly, we know that this box contains armor and weapons for the secretary and his band of conspirators, and that it came from your house. Confess at once, or first this child shall die, and then you shall follow. All I can tell you, replied the agent, is that I deal in arms as well as in other things. Is that a crime for which an honest man can be put to death? If it is, you must begin with me, and now. So saying, he made a rush for the officers. Stop, thundered the secretary, throwing off his disguise. He now explained that some of the conspirators had expressed fear that the agent, who knew everything connected with the expedition, might betray them at the eleventh hour, and their leader, to make sure, had resorted to this disguise to put the agent to the test. He, as well as the ronin, apologized for their distrust and openly expressed their admiration for the courage and loyalty of the agent. The secretary willingly accepted an invitation to partake of refreshments, and with two of his men remained, while the others returned on board. The agent's wife, urged by her father to consider herself divorced, and to accept another husband whom he had chosen for her, had not been able to sleep that night, and, anxious to see her husband and child, she had quietly left the house. Reaching her home while the agent was entertaining his guests, she induced the servant to admit her. Her husband, hearing her voice, left the room and commanded her to return to her father, but he could not explain why he wished her to do so. The merchant was aware that his father-in-law could compel his daughter to marry again, because when a man sends his wife to her father to stay, it means that he divorces her. 
Hence, although she obeyed his orders to leave the house, she would not go away from the door. The secretary and his two companions could not help overhearing what was passing, and they appreciated the agent's difficulty. The leader whispered some instructions to them, and they left the house at the back, and passing to the front, met the wife as she came out of the door. They seized the frightened woman, unfastened her hair, cut it off, and, laughing, ran away with it. They returned by the way they had come, while the wife's outcries brought the agents to the front door. He bade the woman enter and laid his perplexities before his guests. The secretary handed him his wife's tresses, saying that there would be no danger now of any suitors, but that she had better enter a convent for a while, so that her hair might have time to grow. This was agreed upon, and the samurai then took their leave. I wish, said the secretary in parting, that you were a samurai. You would then be able to join us, and I am sure no one would be braver. But you shall hear from us long before your wife's hair has grown, so your separation need not be long. The two junks with the conspirators on board set sail, and in due time arrived in Yeddo. On a narrow strip of land extending into the bay, with Yashiki residences of other nobles on both sides, was the house of the court noble for whose murder such deep plans had been laid. A dark night had been set apart for the attack, which was to be made according to the directions of the man who had furnished the plans of the grounds. The appointed time arrived. It was dark and the ground was white with snow. The son, in command of half the band, was to scale the wall near the front gate, while the secretary with the other half would enter by the water gate. The party at the front gate were in position and listened impatiently for the signal that the water gate had been forced. After waiting for a long time, two of them cautiously scaled the wall and dropped down on the other side. They heard the watchman's rattle as he was making his rounds, and when he passed near the spot where they lay concealed, they sprang upon him, gagged him, and secured him. They forced him to continue his rounds, and to rattle at stated intervals that nothing unusual might arouse suspicion. At last the signal was heard. Dark forms rushed to the front gate, opened it, and admitted the sun with his men, shouting the battle cry agreed upon. The guards and servants, running hither and thither without order or supervision, were cut down by the sharp swords of the Avengers. Now they approached the house. In a few minutes the tightly closed shutters were unfastened, and the victorious samurai searched the rooms for their intended victim. Seated on a stool in the garden, the secretary directed the movements of his men, but the noise had aroused the inmates of the adjacent residences, and men bearing lanterns and torches appeared upon the neighboring roofs, their bearers inquiring into the cause of this disturbance. The secretary with all politeness informed them of the feud against the court noble, adding that there was no danger of fire so that the residences would not be damaged. His object was vengeance only, but if they were inclined to make their neighbor's cause their own, he was ready to receive them. Satisfied with this explanation, and fully sympathizing with the cause of the disturbers, the uninvited spectators withdrew. The avenging party was now in possession of the place, but its owner, the object of their vengeance, was not to be found. It looked, indeed, as if he had effected his escape, and the secretary, after detailing men to guard the gates, commenced a systematic search. The residence was ransacked in every nook and corner, but neither there nor in the grounds could be found any trace of the fugitive. In searching the shed used for storing charcoal, a person was found hiding, and, being dragged out, was recognized as the missing noble. He was led to the secretary, who, bowing in recognition of the captive's rank, briefly reminded him of the misfortunes he had caused the clan and its lord, and requested him to commit harakiri, that the soul of the dead daimyo might be appeased by having the noble's head placed upon his tomb. So be it, was the reply. My head shall be at your disposal. Then he drew his dagger as if to use it upon himself. But, suddenly rising to his feet, he struck furiously at the secretary. The latter, however, was on his guard and caught his now desperate foe by the wrist. After a brief struggle, the noble lay writhing on the ground. Do with him as you pleased, exclaimed the secretary, and the next instant the swords of the samurai were buried into the body of their enemy.
Oh, happy hour, one cried as he withdrew his sword. Oh, blessed event, for this we have left parents, wives, and children and lived as homeless outcasts. For this we have refused to take honorable service that we might be free to wreak vengeance upon our destroyer. Could we live three thousand years, never again might we hope to meet with such good fortune. Then the head was cut off washed, and reverently set upon a temporary altar where the dead daimyo's emblem had been placed by the secretary. The samurai then burned incense, and called upon the soul of their lord to approve of the act to which they had devoted their lives. It was now broad daylight, and the city was ringing with their deed. They formed in procession, and, passing before the residence of a high noble, they were invited to enter, and partake of some refreshments. They did so, and were highly applauded for their loyalty. Then proceeding to their lord's tomb, they placed their enemy's head upon it, and committed Harakiri to escape punishment by the regent. There is no story told in Japanese books that can give a better idea of the spirit animating a samurai. It is founded upon facts, and explains many circumstances that are almost inconceivable to us. The rule that without progress, persons as well as nations must decay and perish, was defied by Japan. For more than 250 years, that country was kept stationary. Such a condition would have produced retrogression anywhere else, but it was this spirit of the samurai that saved the country. This sturdy, proud, self-reliant spirit, suffering no superiority, acknowledging no master, impatient of restraint, was stirred to the utmost when, notwithstanding undeniable valor, the samurai suffered defeat from strangers, inferiors in their opinion, since they were not samurai, nor even Japanese. Dissembling their real feelings as did the secretary in the story, they set about learning the secret of these strangers' strength, they began to study our arts and methods with that set purpose which commands success. They introduced our habits first indiscriminately, to discard after closer acquaintance such as might prove harmful to Japan. Self-interest was never considered. When wealth was requisite for their purpose, they would have such wealth, not as an aim in itself, but as an incident to promote their schemes. They have transferred their loyalty from clan to country, and from hollyhock or gentian to the imperial chrysanthemum. What must be the future of a country guided by such a spirit? End of section 24